Mrs. Penn Lewis. She was much involved in the great Welsh revival at the beginning of this century. In one of her books, she tells how God dealt with her. One day she had a vision in which it seemed God was holding up before her a bundle of filthy rag. She said to God, What is that, Lord? And he said, It is your service, my child. But she said, It is consecrated service. Yes, he said, consecrated flesh. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your grace, apart from which I would not know you. And I could not know the freedom there is in knowing the one true and loving God, living God. I thank you, Lord, that you are that God and that your ways are past finding out. And they're beyond my grasp. And Lord, apart from that truth, that reality, that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, Lord, I can't explain why you choose chose me but i am very very grateful as as grateful as i can that the your grace allows and 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 powers i i know lord that apart from you i can do nothing and it's that grace alone that grants me gratitude and love and devotion and commitment you are the god of regenerate, born-again, repentant men of faith and women and children. Lord, I, I pray that as I enter into this time of sharing your word and my testimony, that you may get all the praise and all the glory. For Jesus' sake, in his name I pray. Amen. It's been an interesting week for me. I've been here many times before. I could go back to the early 70s when having received Christ six years before and not knowing another Christian, not being in a godly, healthy, gospel, accurately preaching church, um, I was left alone like a baby on a battlefield. And while even then, even at that time, as a young teenager, you know, I, I did not succumb to many temptations in the 60s that could easily have overtaken me. But as I grew up older and I became more aware and sin started to get a grip on my life, I found myself broken before the cross, broken as a man and given new eyes to see with and ears to hear with, and I was lifted up to a higher plane, as it says with unveiled face all we uh, in the presence of the Lord are moving from glory to glory, even by um, the Lord, the Spirit. You know, in, in that way, we move, uh, we're transformed, we're changed. And it's really uh, a pattern of life for those who understand it. And we, we become better and better, not by our human efforts, but by God's grace. And so it it has in recent days happened to me, very, very recent days, where I had entered in increasingly into an awareness, as you do when you read the Word of God and you study and you're willing to have your eyes open and you see things wrong. You see things wrong around you in the world and in the church. And you see those things and you pray for them and you enter into a passion for Jesus and you walk with Jesus and you care for those things and you reach out to people and you disciple them and you share the word of God with them and you do it in love and concern until the day comes when you, you go beyond what it says, be angry and do not sin, to that place where you start to enter into sin. And anger becomes more than it's meant to be and you start to harden your heart even to it. And so that's where I found myself, you know, even though... 
uh, time after time, my loving wife would speak to me and would make mention of it, and I wouldn't hear, and I wouldn't hear, and until it grew to a place where I was very hard, and I was becoming increasingly, my voice, my tones, my attitude were becoming increasingly hard. And then the day comes when God says, okay, this is the day, and someone speaks to you in, in your own turn, tones, and thank God, I must thank God, for in, pa- in the past I've read, particularly from one individual who uh, lived during the middle of the 20th century and was part of an East African revival, and having seen what I'm talking about as far as being broken repeatedly, and being broken as a way of life, and humbling oneself again and again before the cross as the way of the Christian, the born-again believer, the regenerate, those who have been given a new heart and a new mind and, and living under a new covenant of grace. It becomes a way of life, and you just grow from glory to glory. And having read that and being aware of that, you know, when it came time this past week, and my eyes were open to realize what had happened to me. Slowly, almost unperceivable, and then I had to be broken by the Lord. And the Lord said to me, very clearly in in my conscience, in my heart, as I have knowledge of the Word of God, it wasn't an audible voice, but in the, in the, the shadows of my mind, so to speak, I heard, you know, the church, men, godly men, Church men for centuries have sought to fix the church. Men bigger and better than you. Men with wider ministries than you. And the, and the church is still broken. And with that, I had to but humble myself and realize it was not my job to enter into fixing the church as if I were God. Proclaiming the word in love is one thing. Taking the text of scripture as in Revelation about the churches where four are in the tank, one is not even a church, and only two receive no words of reproach. And that's God speaking to his church in concern for his church. And he can do it as harshly as he wants. And a man can stand and preach when his heart is filled with love and the grace of God, and he can preach in a manner that would represent God. I believe that wholeheartedly. I've heard so many do it. And and in the end, it's it's the voice of God. But that's different than entering into judgment ourselves. And I had done that, and I had to repent of that. And so it is with that testimony of being restored, having the burden lifted, having the anger taken away, not for me to live there any longer. I want to read what this man wrote In his book, When I Saw Him, Where Revival Begins, by Roy Hessian. And I want to read from that book as much as I can in the time allotted here. And what he said concerning when Isaiah saw him, the vision of the throne. Beginning in Isaiah chapter 6, it reads, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, And his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each one having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The posts of the door moved at the voice of him who cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo! This has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, 
who will go for us. Then said I, here I am, send me. And he said, go. Isaiah 6, 1-9. And the rest I'm quoting from this chapter. I may break in, but... In the sixth chapter of his prophecy, Isaiah tells us how he was given a vision of the Lord and about the profound effect it had upon him. His life was never the same afterwards, and he was given an entirely new ministry. The interesting thing is that this man was a preacher before he ever had this vision. Indeed, we have five chapters of his sermons before he saw the Lord in this way. It is apparently only in chapter 6 that he sees the Lord high and lifted up. What was the doing of all those years of preaching before he had this vision? He was working for God and doubtless doing so very hard, but without vision, with a, without a terrible possibility for us to be very busy, or I should say, what a terrible possibility for us to be very busy in our service for God, but without vision, or at least without a new vision, serving only in the strength of an old one that has become stale. This is something very prevalent in Christian service at home and on the mission field when many are working for God, but without a new personal vision of him. The work as a result becomes heavy. There is little outcome from it, and the worker himself becomes utterly discouraged. But he knows nothing better, and he plods on, not seeing that he, he does not see. But there came a day when Isaiah did see, when God granted him a new voice of himself. Wonderful day for Isaiah. We can see what the emphasis of this message was during those early years by glancing through his first five chapters. There are scattered throughout it constant woes pronounced on evildoers. Woe unto you that do this. Woe unto you that do the other. There are six such woes. Truly his message is important, but there is no woe pronounced upon himself. It is not until chapter six when he sees the Lord high and lifted up that he says, Woe is me. For I am undone. My eyes have seen the, the king. All those years he had been working not only without vision, but without a broken spirit, pointing the finger at others, condemning others, but not seeing himself. We can do, we can be doing the same, criticizing others, pronouncing woes on others, without having been humbled to say, quote, Woe is me for I am undone. And that because we have not seen what Isaiah saw, as a result, revival has not yet begun in our hearts. For the Lord is only near those of a broken and contrite spirit. Quote, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. I want you to notice the occasion of this vision of the Lord. He tells us that it happened in the year that King Uzziah died. The story of that king is given in 2 Chronicles 26. He was a God-fearing king, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. He was marvelously helped in all his enterprises until he was strong. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up in pride to his destruction and he took it upon himself to offer incense in the holy place of the temple, something that only priests were permitted to do. The priest tried to withstand him, saying, quote, This is transgressing the commandment of God. End quote. But he went in with his censer, and as they looked at him, they saw a white patch appear on his forehead. They all knew what it was. It was leprosy. God had smitten him that day for his sin, and though he hasted to get out of the holy place, he was a leper until the day of his death, living in a separate house. And it was in the year that he died that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Having seen how God would judge even a king for his sin, Isaiah saw what a holy God he had to deal with. The occasion of our seeing the Lord will vary, 
Something may happen that will participate a crisis, and we shall find ourselves standing before God in a new way. It could be something like that which shook Isaiah. That is how it was in the church at Ephesus in Acts 19. A new vision of God came to the Ephesian church when they saw how God confounded those Jewish exorcists who took it upon themselves to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They did not cast out the demon at all, but the man in whom the demon was leapt on them, and they had to flee. And when the church saw it, they saw they were dealing with a holy God, and that no man could trifle with the name of Jesus. They began to see sin in their own lives, for they themselves had been playing with the occult and black magic, and a great spirit of repentance swept the church. They brought out their hidden things of darkness and burnt them, burned them openly. Sometimes it is some special occasion of the judgment of sin like this that makes the saints see the Lord again. Years ago, I met a man and his wife who had a wonderful ministry of sharing Jesus as a team of two all over the area, and he told me how it all started. He was an elder in a Presbyterian church, and their minister was overtaken in a moral fault. It shocked the church and the elders who had to deal with it, and they had to ask the minister to leave. He said it was in the year of that that scandal broke upon the church that he himself saw the Lord, how holy he was. And he saw his own sins in the light of that holiness. I might not have done exactly what my pastor had done, he said, but in God's sight I saw sin just as bad as his. I had things to put right and my wife and others, and I entered into an experience of victory in Christ. God can use even scandal to wake up the saints. When we see how God judges sin in others, his searchlight is turned on us. However, the variety of things God uses is infinite. What did Isaiah see? He saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting upon a throne. Around the throne there were seraphim, beautiful creatures, scintillating with light, whose constant task was to proclaim to one another the holiness and glory of one upon the throne. As they did so, the temple was shaken to its foundations, and Isaiah shook with them, and the temple was filled with smoke. This was the cloud that from time to time appeared in Israel's history, symbolizing the presence and glory of God, and called the Shekinah cloud of glory. When that cloud filled the newly erected tabernacle in the wilderness, Moses was unable to enter because of it. When centuries later the temple was built in Jerusalem, the same Shekinah cloud of glory filled it to show that God was there and the priests could not stand to minister because of it. And here was poor Isaiah having to remain gazing on it all. It was, however, the action of the awesome seraphim that seems to have broken him down especially. Such was the holiness of God They were veiling themselves before him. Each of them had six wings, and with two of them they hid their faces, with two of them they hid their feet, and with only two of them they flew. Four of their six wings were used to hide themselves before the face of the one upon the throne. Why were they doing this? Because although they were beautiful, the one upon the throne was infinitely beautiful more so. And they were concerned, lest at any degree, their beauty should somehow divert attention from that other beauty. So they made it their supreme task to hide themselves with four of their wings, that only the Lord on the throne may be seen. Only two of their wings were used for service. This sight, I imagine, had a profound effect on Isaiah. In the light of the action of those creatures, greater in power and might than ever he could be, whose supreme concern was to hide themselves before God, he saw that his supreme concern had been to display himself. I take it that his attitude up till then had in effect been, I am gifted by God. I have a call from God. If I am working for God, 
than others should see. He was not using any wings to hide himself. He had been working hard on all six wings and hoping God, hoping people would see it all. Sure, he had been doing it all for God, but there were all sorts of extra bonuses that had come his way because of it. Bonuses by way of status and the praise of men. And we can guess he secretly enjoyed them and had allowed them to become the motivation of much of what he was doing. Now he looked upon all that was happening before the throne of God. He came under terrible conviction of sin, the realization that his service was self-inspired, and in complete brokenness he cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone. Listen, he continues and gives us the reason for this woe he pronounces upon himself. Because I am a man of unclean lips. What did he mean by this expression? The lips are tools of the heart. And if his lips were unclean, it was because his heart was unclean. More than that, his lips represented his service. He was a preacher. If there was one part of him he thought was consecrated to God, it was his lips. He had golden lips, gifted lips. But that day he saw that even his consecrated service was unclean and unacceptable to God because it was all self-inspired. He would never have seen this had his eyes not looked upon the king, the Lord of hosts, and the seraphim hiding themselves before him. It was a revelation of God and it has to be for us. This sort of scene is going on in heaven at this very moment. We must not think that this scene was laid on just for Isaiah's benefit. When we turn to Revelation chapter 4, we see the same thing happening centuries afterwards. John sees the same throne, the same one upon it, the same heavenly creatures, and hears a similar cry, Holy Holy, holy, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. This had been going on in heaven all the time and continues there to this very hour. The seraphim are still proclaiming the holiness of God, the glory of God, and they are still hid themselves before him. God wants us to see what Isaiah saw that our supreme concern has been to display self and even to use our service for God to that end. Though it is his work we are engaged in, the underlying motive has been be seen, be known, be heard. This is terrible, a terrible sin in the eyes of God and should be so too in our eyes. The pride of it, the rebellion of it, abusing the grace of God and our call to service in order that we should be displayed and get the glory. And in so doing, hiding the glory of the one who we profess to be serving. This is me speaking, but this is awful. Back to Hessian. A former generation of Christians knew well the name of Mrs. Penn Lewis. She was much involved in the great Welsh revival at the beginning of this century. In one of her books, she tells how God dealt with her. One day, she had a vision in which it seemed God was holding up before her a bundle of filthy rags. She said to God, What is that, Lord? And he said, It is your service, my child. But she said, It is consecrated service. Yes, he said, consecrated flesh. Our service can just be flesh, that is, the natural fallen self, consecrated to God, and God does not want it consecrated to him. It is full of wrong motives. He himself has described the mind of the flesh as enmity against God. He has judged the flesh at the cross of Jesus, where his son was made in, a, in its likeness and was judged as it. Rather than consecrate it to him, he wants us to accept his judgment of it 
in order that the life of the Lord Jesus might be revealed in us. What did, Je- what did Isaiah mean when he said, for I am undone? It is a deep word. I think it means that he saw that the thing with which he had previously been content in himself had all the time been an abomination in the sight of God. That what he had always regarded as gain was in reality dead loss. This must have been a shocking experience for Isaiah, as it is for us, when after years of apparently successful service, we see in the light of God that much of it, if not all, has been done in the strength of the flesh and for the glory of self, that it has just been our work for him rather than his work through us, and that the Lord himself has not been the center of it. Then indeed our comeliness is turned into corruption, as was Daniel's when he saw the Lord. I remember Dr. Joe Church said to me when he returned to England, as he mentions in his foreword, quote, I find the Christians in England have the queerest idea of what revival is. They think it is the top blowing off, when in reality it is the bottom falling out, end quote. I laughed at the time, but I little knew how soon after God would indeed cause the bottom to fall out of what I thought was my consecrated Christian service, and that I would begin to say, woe is me, for I am undone. It seemed to lose all my I seemed to lose all my confidence as a preacher and, and hardly knew what to preach or how to do it until I learned again the message of God's grace for sinners and saw a deeper meaning in the blood of Jesus and its power to cleanse than I had before. This then is the conviction of sin corresponding to Isaiah's that God desires to give us as we see him in his holiness, that our service has been done in the flesh perhaps for many years, and that without our knowing it, self has intruded even into holy things. And so much of what has been done has been done in the power of the self-life rather than in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to stay longer on this all-important matter of the intrusion of self into our Christian lives and service. I think we can say there are three main forms of the self-life. First, there is self-will. I make the plans. I, rather than the Lord, initiate things. As each day dawns, I am the king of that day, and if I want to indulge in something, I will. The second form of the self-life is self-effort. I, trying to do God's work for him by my own efforts, expedients, and schemes. And of course, this follows from the first, what begins with me, has to be done by me. This applies not only to service, but to Christian life itself. He says, I thought you understood that the Christian life was my responsibility in you, but you are making it your promises and trying to do better yourself. This too is the intrusion of self. And then there is the third form of the self-life, self-glory. The desire for people to think well of us, the doing of things ostensibly for God, but really for our own glory, hoping that people will think, what a victorious Christian, or what a wonderful preacher, or what a great soul winner, or what a beautiful Christian home. These, I suggest, are the main forms of the self-life. You can see them in all Nebuchadnezzar's proud words with regard to, to his capital city, Babylon. Is not this great Babylon that I have built? Self-will. By the might of my power, self-effort. For the honor of my majesty, self-glory. God's plan is completely otherwise. You have it in Romans 11.36. Of him and through him, and to him are all things. When we see the Lord, we are convicted of this right down to details in the holy as well as in the secular parts of our lives. Sometimes we do not help one another 
in the way we speak. We say about a certain Christian worker, God is blessing him in that town. What do we mean, God is blessing him? We mean that God is using him, but God is not blessing him so much as blessing the others to whom he ministers. He sees their own need is so great that he will pick up a bit of rubbish like that man to help them. Do we not see the danger in speaking like this? We come to regard being used of God as a coveted prize. If we get it, we are proud and think it must be due to something in us. If we do not, we are disappointed in ourselves and jealous over others, apparently more successful than we are, and struggle by our own efforts to obtain the prize next time. How terrible this all is. And this is me speaking. I mean, this is really terrible. Back to Hessian. It is not a prize he is going to give to you. It is a prize he wants to give to those poor and needy people to whom he sends you. It is only his love for them that causes him to take you up. There are many things he has to deal with about. He is just waiting his time. Meanwhile, he will use you, but in his own time, he will show you himself, and you will see yourself more sinful than the very people you have been ministering to. And then you will no longer be trying to be a shepherd over sheep, but taking your place as a, as a sheep, among sheep. A sheep that has gone astray, whom the shepherd has restored, and you will share that with your fellow sheep. Then the Lord has gone on to deal with me over self-effort. So often it has been me doing it and find I cannot do it. How hard it all seems to be when I am trying to do it. If it were Jesus, doing it would be very different. But all too often it is me doing it. And now, more recently, the Lord has been dealing with me over self-will, my self-initiated service, my attempts and schemes to bring revival to a wider circle. Having heard of mighty, widespread blessing in other countries, I decided we should have the same in England, and I began to make means and measures to that end. But God has had to rebuke me for taking his place as the initiator of his work. There is, of course, a place for a right cooperation with God. More of that in another chapter. But he must be the initiator of the work and not us. You know, here Roy is being very transparent. I mean, he's talking as a minister, minister, as a pastor, as a man who's been serving God for so many years, and he just opens up on this last paragraph and just talk about everything he's doing wrong in the flesh. I mean, I have to commend the man for writing books like this, where he so humbles himself before God and before his readers. I mean, may, may all of us be just like this. Back to Roy. Oh, this terrible intrusion of self. It was because of this that Moses was excluded from the promised land. As he smote the rock twice, God had told him only to speak to it. He said, here now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? This is Moses. This is me again. He's speaking about Moses. This is the man who is the most humble in the time uh, of that time on earth. Back to Roy. The intrusion of self was seen here in more than one way. First, he adopted the attitude that their murmurings were against him rather than against the Lord. On a previous occasion, he had said, you quote, your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord, end quote. But not this time. Previously, in a situation like this, he had fallen on his face before the Lord. But this time, he stood on his face with eyes blazing, having lost his temper with them. Then secondly, he spoke as if he and Aaron were to bring the people water out of the rock. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? This is me again. You know, we're all tempted in this way so many times. I mean, this is just, I wish I could say this was an uncommon thing, but this is very common on planet Earth. Back to Roy. It was the Lord who was going to do it, not they. 
What a grievous intrusion of self to speak like this. And back to me. And the reason I make that statement, like who am I, am I to judge? I make that statement because when we read things like Moses, the most humble man on the earth at that time, we make statements like Job, the most humble man on the earth at time, the most righteous at that time. And then these men are broken and you see them stumble over people on what they're saying and they fall into this you know, self-pity and all these things. And these are, these are men that God rose to the heights. I mean, what can a man like me say? I'm not a Moses. I'm not a Job. I'm not a Paul. And how about the rest of us? I don't mean to point the finger at anyone, but you know, humbling ourselves before God is just so necessary. Back to Roy. Then, thirdly, he acted as if simply to speak to the rock and let God do the rest was not enough. He had to do something about it, and something spectacular. And he smote the rock twice. Failing in faith, he acted in self-effort and self-will. Then then God spoke to him and told him that he was the rebel, not the people. Moses had called the people rebels, but when God spoke to him, he said in effect, you rebelled against my word. The Lord went even deeper with him and said that acting as he had, he had failed to, quoting the actual words, sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. That, that is, he had misrepresented God to the people. God wanted them to see him as a long-suffering God, merciful and gracious, bearing patiently with their sin, and that the rock had only to be spoken to and water would be available for them. This would have done more to melt the people to repentance for their murmuring and unbelief than anything else. Moses, however, gave the impression that God was a resentful God, pointing his finger at them, something that would be more likely to harden them than otherwise. This was sin indeed, and so it was that Moses and Aaron were denied the the culminating desire of their lives, that of leading the people into the promised land. All this is a picture, point for point, of the way in which self has intruded into our Christian lives and service. We who are in any degree leaders have had those who have opposed us, but we have not fallen on our faces before the Lord and recognizing that their opposition is not against us, but against Him. We have rather reacted in a personal way as if it were a personal affront to us and in bitterness and anger have thought of them as you rebels, quote-unquote. We have perhaps lain awake at night having mental arguments with them and having won every argument. And it has not been only mental arguments. Words have followed thoughts and sometimes eyes have flashed. In so doing, we, like Moses, have exalted ourselves as if we were in control and as if we were to bring them out of the rock. We forgot that self cannot do anything except fail, and we lost sight of Jesus. The attitudes we have adopted sometimes when disputed with have been truly blasphemous. What terrible words. Quote, must we fetch you water? End quote. What a grievous intrusion of self. Then too, like Moses, we cannot believe that so little on our part as just speaking to the rock can produce a big result as is needed. We must do something and do something strong. Failing in faith, we act in the flesh, a further intrusion of self. When God at last speaks to us, it is to show that we who are we're calling other people rebels are ourselves the real rebels. We have rebelled against his way of gentleness and forgiveness and chosen our own way. And in doing so, we have misrepresented him and given an impression of him quite other than the gracious God. He is. And have hardened people rather than melted them. We need inquire no further as to why we seem to have been excluded from the promised land of a happy and victorious Christian life. 
We have not seen the intrusion of self in our situations and relationships with others, or seeing it, have not chosen deeply to repent of it. And thus, it was that Moses was broken in repentance and said, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And that was Isaiah. Then and only then flew one of the seraphim unto me. Here, here comes the gospel for the penitent soul. We will permit ourselves only a glimpse of it. At this early stage in the book, much more will follow. Can we imagine this contrite cry reaching the ears of those seraphim? Could we take the liberty of imagining one of them saying to another, Did you hear something? It sounded like a sinner repenting. I heard, Woe is me, I am undone. There is a man in distress down there. He has lost hope. He thinks there is no mercy for him. Could we picture him turning to God and saying, O Lord of the throne, can you spare me for a moment? And the Lord replying, Go quickly to him. He needs all the comfort heaven can give. For I will not content, I am not content forever, neither will I be always wroth. Go, loose not a moment. And the seraph goes to the altar. There is a lamb there lying in the flames for just this situation, bearing the judgment of this man's sin. The seraph takes the live coal from off the altar, a token of the judgment finished there for him by the lamb. He flies to Isaiah and puts it upon his mouth, saying, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. The Hebrew word translated purged is more literally expiated. In using this word, the seraph is in effect pointing back to the altar, saying, Your sin has been expiated fully there. There are two things here. Your iniquity has been taken away, something subjective, and your sin expiated, something objective. The subjective is based, as always, on the objective. His sin was taken away, and he could feel that it had been, because by faith he saw it had been first been anticipated and expiated on the altar. What a picture here of the altar of Calvary's cross, of the Lamb of God who has hung upon it, and of the power of his precious blood. The Holy Spirit comes to us when we say, Woe is me, and points us back to the cross, telling us our sin has been anticipated and fully expiated by Jesus through his blood to the satisfaction of God, and the Spirit applies that blood to our unclean lips, meaning our carnal service and many sins, telling us they are taken away and the stain of them fully cleansed. We cannot be more right with God than what the blood makes us when we call sin, sin. We are now fully restored and able to respond to the call, quote, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And hear the Lord say to us, Go. But this time, how different. No more let us be my working. No more let it be my work, nor my wisdom, love, or power, but the life of Jesus only, passing through me hour by hour. F.H. Allen. If self intrudes again, and it may do so, we know exactly what to do and how to to come into freedom again. Back to his cross for cleansing. If in despair we say, Lord, I've done it again, he simply replies, what have you done again? There is just no record of it ever having happened before because the full cleansing of the blood of Jesus. If we see this way of the blood, we cannot but win and Satan and his accusations be overcome. Have we anything hopeful to say of Moses here? The last we saw of him, he was excluded from the promised land. 
If the grace of God reached Isaiah, could it not reach Moses? Indeed, it could and did. First, it is clear that Moses repented and did so deeply. Remember, it was he who wrote the story of his sin, and no man says things like that about himself, excusing nothing without having first humbled himself before God and about it all. The story as we read it must be regarded as Moses' testimony. Second, grace reached him, for he got into the land after all and in a better way than he ever dreamed. When Jesus was transfigured before his disciples on that mount of Canaan, there is Moses standing with him with Elijah. He has made the promised land after all. What a wonderful door of hope this shows there to be for any man who will cease to blame others and consent to say before God, Woe is me. He too will find himself brought into the promised land of blessing where all is forgiven and Jesus is really Lord. The only closing words to Roy that I have, you know, are words which God tells us that this is the life we are meant to live. It's a life of repeated confession of sin, of repentance, of restoration, of revival. Revival is back to life, back to life. The life of God, not our own, not the flesh, not the ways of doing things in self, but the way God meant it to repeatedly in our lives. I mean, it was Luther said, you know, where, where faith remains, repentance remains. You know, I think that's right. Repentance has to be a repetitive thing because the devil is always tempting, the world is always tempting, the flesh is always tempting. It's not who we are anymore as Christians. I'm a new creation in Christ. All things have passed away. All things are becoming new. This is a, a process. It's part of that sanctification process. And how, we, how it works in our lives is by seeing the cross, seeing the work done for us, seeing our identity in Christ. Just read through Romans chapter, chapters 4 through 8, and you see identity, identity, identity on every chapter, line after line, in Christ, in the race, you know, separated now, from, not under the scourge of the law, but walking in the Spirit. It's all our identity in Christ. It's always there. It's already always ready for us. And so keeping short clips, which I often try to, but sometimes it, it gets away from me and it becomes longer and I have to be broken greater. And I'm thankful for the greater breaking while I'm not happy over the fact that I let it go as long as I did. Not as an act of pride but of, of acting the way we should, I should, in, in looking to God continually in repentance in everything, not missing that my heart is getting harder, not missing that I'm walking in pride and self, not walking in these things. It has to be a constant reminder. So I got a big reminder this week so that I go back the way I know and I've known for decades, this is the way you walk. We walk in repentance. I, I don't know to what extent God leads Christians, brothers and sisters, to how long people can go. You know, from 14 to my late teens, I wasn't even growing as a child. He protected me as a baby, but then when I came to a greater repentance and faith in Christ, and he pr protected me there, and I went through years of good service, to some extent, confessing sin, and then another long time, not long by means of decades, but you know, long in months, and then you see it, and it's like, what, what was I waiting for? The call here is a call to constant repentance, keeping short stock of what we're doing, short account of what we what we do that may not be pleasing to God by walking in the flesh. And by so doing, we walk closer to God. We can spend better time in prayer. You know, if you want to know where, you're, where you are, just keep account of what you, how you pray. Are you praying for seven minutes a day? You know, it might be sin keeping you from that. 
if, uh, as I've had people tell me, oh, I pray all throughout the day. Well, that's not really a tithe of pray. That's praying without ceasing, and that's good. But, you know, uh, uh, giving God the time, like we give God money or gifts or we present things to him, you know, presenting an hour or two or three to God is not the same as praying throughout the day whenever we think of it for a couple of minutes or a minute. And so if that time isn't there, and it's in that time that confession takes place. It's in that time that we, we pray as we should. And, and I know this. And sure enough, if I look back over a period of time, the prayer time was not as rich as it might be. And that's a, that's a warning sign. It's a, you know, it's a, a, a neon sign that says, whoa, whoa, slow down. Stop. Spend time with God. You will find yourself in repentance during those times. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Isaiah and for Moses and for David and for men who knew how to repent, men who knew how to humble themselves. Lord, I pray for anyone hearing this, men in ministry, men in members of churches, men as the role of elder, shepherd of the sheep, men not in those positions, men who are under the blood, men who have been covered by the blood, blood, men who have been brought to regeneration and to be born again and who are men with a new heart and a new soul and a new condition, men who know you and thereby responsible to walk in a humble way. I pray, Lord, if any men around the world who are called to service, called into the church of Jesus Christ and have not really got a full awareness of what it means to stand at the, at the temple doorway and see it filled with smoke and see the angels and the way they present themselves before God and what the focus of their life is first and foremost to hide themselves and humble themselves before the Almighty. If that's not in their thinking, if they're not aware of those things, I pray, dear Lord, that you would, you would show them those things. I, show, I pray you would show them the way of humility and the way of repentance that they would not find, as some will, according to 1 Corinthians 3, it's being saved as though through fire. Lord, it's not wood and stubble that we want to see being burned up in hay. We want to see gold and silver and precious stones. And Lord, the, the way of that is not the way of self, but the way of presenting self on the altar so that uh, we, we die to self and so that there is the renewing of our mind so that we will not be conformed to this world but to be conformed to your image. I ask, Lord, that you open the eyes of many in this valuable biblical truth. May it become a reality to many. I ask these things for your honor and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.